wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Welcome to the very first episode of Bleeding Daylight. Our guest today from Uganda is Richmond Wandera. He has a story that you'll definitely want to share. It's absolutely inspirational. Richmond Wandera has an incredible story to tell. He's the senior pastor of New Life Baptist Church in Kampala, Uganda, and is the founder and director of Pastors Discipleship Network, a non-profit that serves, equips and trains thousands of pastors across East Africa. He's a master's degree in spiritual formation from Moody Graduate and Theological Seminary in Chicago and holds a PhD in philosophy of leadership from Lancaster Bible College and Capital Seminary. Now, it might sound like Richmond has led an extraordinary life, and he has, but perhaps not in the ways that you might think. His childhood was painful and challenging, marked by extreme poverty, illness, loss and hopelessness. His family often went without food. He suffered from malaria almost a dozen times. Violence visited their home in a tragic way. And today we get to spend a little bit of time unravelling some of that story. Uh, Richmond, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Rodney. I'm happy to be here. I want to talk about that moment when, as an eight-year-old, your your life came crashing down. But before that, (laughs) what are your memories as a young boy? I was the third born of six children, and uh, I was born to a mother who was married off at a very, very young age, at the age of 17. By the time she was 25, she had six children, and I was the third born of that, as I already said. Um, but my father, my father, he was a lawyer, okay, and he was able to provide for our family. And so he wasn't the typical lawyer that you'd imagine with a suit and tie and, <laughs> you know, all of that. No, 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 no. He was the kind of person who couldn't wait to take off the tie and who couldn't wait to take off the suit. And I recall uh, two specific instances with my dad, us driving to watch his favorite team play and he's going clearly over the speed limit. <laughs> and we're at the back slamming the side of the car saying KCC, KCC, because that was his favorite football team. And uh, it was all KCC but it was fun and I do remember another time when he believed that he could lift all six of us and my mother up and and he tried (laughs) and we knew he hadn't succeeded but he believed he had and so I do remember a very very fond memories of my dad and my mom and uh, Rodney we we were really one united family heading towards a bright future until all that changed tell me how that changed I was eight years old when I was rushed out of school, only to come home and find that my mother and father were not around, yet there were a lot of people gathered around the house and people were crying and wailing and they'd put uh, three massive uh, old pieces of wood uh, in front of our house and lit them on fire. In Uganda, when you see that, you know that death has come to that home. And I did not know who had died. I did not know what had happened. And then um, it dawned on me when I saw the blood in front of our home that someone has been taken away from our home. Uh, Rodney, I learned later that day that my father had been murdered in the presence of my mom. And my mom was in hospital for witnessing uh, what my father had experienced. Something happened to her body. She changed. Um, that day, it seemed like I'd lost both my parents. My father, physically, he was killed and murdered. 
Uh, but my mom, emotionally and psychologically, she was not the same. Uh, my mom was the kind of woman you called when you're having a bad day. She was a uh, uh, sunshine. She could talk your ear off. She was uh, very loud and happy. But Rodney, the woman who returned home, uh, my mother, she was different. She was quiet. She was subdued. She was um, not laughing anymore. And uh, Rodney, that, that really affected us. It affected us, not just the loss of my dad, but the change of my mom. And uh, we began to experience some forms of injustice that are hard to describe. I think the first one was when my mother tried to get um, the benefits from my father's work. And she was told she had to pay money for those benefits to be processed out. And um, she ended up not take, getting a penny from my father's work. Uh, the other thing that happened was my uncle, who should have taken care of us, was in financial problems about that time and uh, he ended up taking what belonged to my father, my father's suits, my father's clothing, the furniture at home and basically sold all of that to take care of his own financial problems, leaving my mother and her six children uh, in, in a more desperate place. There was six of you children. What was the age range? The oldest was 12 while the youngest was one. So you, you've got a, a 12-year-old older sibling. Was that mm. brother or a sister? Brother. Or a brother. Yeah. Um, you're eight in the middle there, mm -hmm. and, and you have a, a one-year-old. Mm -hmm. So seeing this with your mother, you're, you're not only having to process your own grief, and as an eight-year-old, I, I guess that was a difficult thing Absolutely. enough, but, yeah. but trying to process what was happening with your mum. Uh, again, I, I, we, we, we had seen women in the community be abused, and... Uh, and unfortunately, uh, women have been looked at, categorized, and uh, sadly, completely abused in, in, in our cultural space. Now, that's changing, thank God. Uh, but, uh, but by the time this was happening, uh, women were not regarded as having equal rights or anything as, as men. And so it was, it was hard to see my mother just in tears, and she's just helplessly trapped. Uh, she couldn't talk to any of the elders or any of the community leaders or any of the people in the tribal group that were in a place of influence because she was a woman. She basically did exactly as she was told. And uh, so it was hard to see that. And so she is already in a place of difficulty, having lost her husband. And now six children are hanging on to her for hope, as well as all this injustice that's coming to our home. We're in a government system that does not provide welfare to people in her state. And so she's utterly in this place of total devastation. Her health is not good. And so, uh, Rodney, it was in this time that the worst came when we were asked to leave the home because we only had that house that we were living in because of my father's work. And once he was out of the picture, we had to leave the house. And that's how we ended up in Naguru Slum. I want to explore that slum and, and find out a bit about it. But, but first, maybe some background, because this is all happening against a, a background of what's happening in Uganda at the time. Tell, yeah. us, tell us about your country. You're right, Rodney. This is happening uh, against a very massively uh, dark background. 1971 uh, was the beginning of a reign of Idi Amin, who was a brutal dictator. And he ruled the country for nine long years. 
and many people at that time thought it was the end of the world because of so much death and the reckless behavior of the soldiers and the army and uh, the killings that just were unending. But 1979, when Idi Amin was overthrown, it plunged us into a new era of another form of darkness, which was, again, continued reckless death. But it just really uh, was a season where we had so many presidents, each coming in as a rebel leader, and uh, no one coming in by the vote. And between 1979 and 1986, uh, we saw another very dark period. I think the height of the war uh, in Uganda happened in 1986, which is popularly known as the Luero Triangle War, where two rebel groups were pressing against the government simultaneously. Again, again, this is a long period, 1971 to now 1986, a whole period of just death in the country and many people fearing uh, for their future. And so that has now caused Uganda to be the world's second leading country with the youngest population right under Benin. 70%, Rodney, listen, 70% of my nation's population is below the age of 30 years. And 50% of the 70% is below the age of 15. So we have a very young population, but this has come as a result of long-standing civil war. And in the semitics of this background that our story is happening. And so it's not just a crisis within our home, but it's a crisis of the nation. The nation's in crisis, your family's in absolute crisis. Mm-hmm. And as you say, you end up in, in a slum. Paint us a picture of that slum. Naguru slum was regarded by many as the forgotten community. I mean, it's a valley of over 19,000 homes. But each home, not having a space more than um, five by five meters, No home was that size, uh, and, and moreover, it was, it was small homes, one after another, a whole line of homes probably sharing the same toilet, and uh, no places for children to play, no hygiene, no hospitals. Uh, it was a place where most kids did not go to school. And so everybody knew if it is crime or uh, d- drugs or whatever, you thought of this gang activity as more from Naguru. And so the police and the government had in some way kind of given up on that community. So when my mother said to us, "It's t- <laughs> we found a space in Naguru where we will move to, uh, you can imagine the fear that entered our hearts as children. We're going to Naguru, uh, this place. And indeed, when we arrived, I remember walking into our house and looking around and all the eyes of the community just looking at us like who are these people coming in and so we're those coming in and i entered and saw this this one-roomed house and i saw what seemed like uh sun rays pressing through the the iron sheets and i was like what happened when it rains rodney i was soon to find out because not long after that our rainy season kicked in and i recall one night the rain being so strong, the wind being too um, too strong that our center iron sheet was not able to bear that wind and it was literally blown off the roof. Rodney, our home just became one giant bucket. I remember us picking up whatever we could and basically standing with those clothes and blankets and those items right close to our shoulders and our, our chest and, and standing on the side of the house as the rain came through. 
We couldn't run out because it was dark and lightning and thunder and wind. We couldn't stay in. And it was that night, Rodney, that I felt like I had lost myself. Uh, when I reflect on, on what I was lost that night, I think I didn't just lose dignity, but I lost identity. I lost who I was that night. It's like, almost like life was just screaming angrily against, against me as a child. Two of the things that I could say is my constant waking up in the morning and fearing uh, because of the bumps of mosquito bites on my skin that I would get sick of malaria. I'd seen so many kids die from malaria. And after my mom had said to us, there's no more money for food, I remember just going out and uh, spending a lot of time on the street trying to survive. And uh, I wouldn't wish that on any child. No child, Rodney, should live through life like that. Not in a world that has the resources that we have. We often imagine poverty as as a lack of resources, as a lack of stuff, so to speak. But you're talking about something that's much deeper than that. I, I Absolutely, Rodney. I, again, most people, if you ask them, define poverty or describe poverty, they'll use very physical descriptors for that. They say poverty is a lack of food. It's a lack of clothing. It's a lack of roof over your head. It's a lack of uh, having that shelter. And while that is true, that's only one side of poverty. I think the real monster and the most devastating side of poverty is the invisible side. It's that voice. For me, it was like an ugly voice that constantly spoke to me. I couldn't escape it. That I was nothing. I was unwanted. Nobody knew my name. Nobody wanted to know my name. Every time I thought of something happy or what I want to be in the future, it says, look, you didn't even have food the previous night. You're not sure you're going to have food tonight. What are you thinking, talking about, dreaming about a future? And uh, <laughs> you, it, it just makes it feel like you're a joke, like you completely, like you don't exist. I remember Mother Teresa saying that feeling forgotten and feeling unwanted is a much greater poverty than the lack of food. Rodney, I totally agree with Mother Teresa's words because I know what that felt like. How does that eight-year-old living in those sort of circumstances, having poverty speak to you daily uh, about you not being worth anything, how does that boy become the man that sits before us today? Well, it's, a, it's a just a beautiful thing what happens when people choose to act. You know, I think everybody's looking at this and nobody's utterly surprised that there is poverty in the world and that the people who are suffering. But I think it's uh, the story becomes beautiful when people act and, and not just empathize or have compassion. So I was only about nine years old now uh, and my mother hears that um, there is a church in the neighborhood that supports children. Now, I remember my mother is, was a woman without faith and my father didn't believe in God. And we, we all were just in a space where uh, we believed in our old African tradition and uh, just looked at people at churches like, oh, those are those people. And we, we, <laughs> we, we, we just, just didn't con connect with them at all. And Rodney, to describe the courage that my mother took, it was, it's like 
me being a Christian today, walking into like a Buddhist temple or something, asking for help for my children, <laughs> uh, it's it's weird because it's like, okay, when I enter there, what will I find? Am, am I allowed to greet as as a woman? Am I allowed to to greet the the the, the vicar or the pastor? And what do I say? I mean, it's just very weird walking into a space which practices a different spiritual expression from you. It's it's scary. But my mother, because she was desperate, she walks into this space and says, "Look, I'm desperate." This is my story. If you guys can help, please do. And Rodi, my mother was surprised. She was surprised at how fast the compassion workers at the local church came to our home. And they came with cameras and with pictures, uh, I mean, with files, and they took our birthday information and background of us as a family, and they took pictures of us. Rodi, I remember standing in front of this camera, and the flash went off, and uh, I felt like hope was coming. Mm-hmm. felt like hope was coming. And indeed, three and a half months after that, uh, we got the news. We got the news that a, listen, and this, this gives me chills just to say it, that a 15-year-old girl called Heather had decided to sponsor me. Just thinking about that just grips me afresh all the time, that my life was rescued by one act of a 15 year old girl and when my mother was told she almost fell off the chair she's like this could easily be my daughter and Rodney I can't get I've failed to get my mind around that I mean when you think about most 15 year old and what they think about themselves but also what other people think about 15 year olds they don't give them a lot of credit they keep saying to them look when you're older when you're 24 25 and you've got a job and you have some spare income then you will make a difference then you'll change the world then you can be a part of this fight but at the age of 15 Heather she had the maturity to take a babysitting job and out of that be able to take care of me. Rodney, that's, that's wild. It's beyond my understanding, but it's shaped what I believe today about 15-year-olds. Do you think sometimes we, we don't expect enough from our teenagers, from our 15-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 18-year-olds? Absolutely. Absolutely, Rodney. I, I believe just that can be seen from how we treat them and how we organize programs for them and what opportunities we we provide for them to make a difference it's 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 evident wherever you see or wherever you turn that 15 year olds are treated as those who will make a difference later and not today and uh we've got to change that we've got to change that we've got to call a 15 year old and say you have everything now to do whatever God has called you to do right now. Whatever your portion is and whatever the impact that's lined up for you to do right now, you can do it right now. And Rodney, I'll tell you one way I am doing that in my community. So young kids, when they reach the age of 14, I begin to call them sir. And people wonder, why are you calling this kid sir? But their whole posture changes. When I'm the senior pastor right now, the church that rescued me as a kid, when I come up, I'm usually dressed up as as a, as, a, as expected in my community that yes. I will be. Uh, no matter how hot it is, I'm dressed in a certain way, but I look at this 14-year-old and I say, good morning, sir. And Rodney, there is a physical impact of that word. I mean, you just see them standing before you say, oh, immediately you almost speak responsibility to them. And Rodney, this is what I'm finding, that when you look at a 15-year-old and say you have now all that you need to make a difference right now, I'll say, 
really? The world doesn't say that to me. The school doesn't say that to me. Clearly, my, my peers don't say that to me. You saying that to me, what do you see that I don't see? And so teenagers can change the world. And one teenager changed my world. How did that change look for you once you found out Heather, a 15-year-old girl who, who didn't have the capacity to sponsor you but yeah. said, I'm going to and I'm going to take a, a babysitting job to do that. How did that start to change your world? You know, when Heather took a babysitting job to sponsor me, she was able to provide Compassion International with $48 a month. And from that, Compassion was able to send that money to the local church in my community. And that local church was able to provide very specific needs that I had. The first one was food. You know, um, food is so basic. And if you live in a country where food is available, easily accessible, um, this point is not as strong but it is an extremely strong point if you live in a country where people have died from starvation. And so food was provided for me. Health care was provided for me. I still remember my health care number, UG129 I can never forget that <laughs> uh, because it was given to me and said, Richmond, anytime you fall sick, don't even run to church or run to the Compassion Project, run to any dispenser or hospital around you. They all, they, they all have our list of sponsored kids and, hey, they'll take care of you and don't worry about the bill. And Rodney, that was the second benefit. So first was education, was, was food. Second was health. The third was education. Rodney, in our country, Uganda, if you don't have money to go to school, the doors are closed. And until someone with the ability to open those doors shows up, the doors remain closed. And so for me, Heather, she was half the way around the world. But because of her generous sacrifice, I was told, Richmond, you can now go back to school. This is going to be your scholastic materials. And I was given a school uniform. And I, I, I still have a picture of myself running to school. And uh, it changed and unlocked my potential in massive ways. But then the other thing is I got a chance to be a child again. My time on the street had ripped childhood off of me completely and there was no time to be a child because I had to provide for my sister and my brothers I had to protect them there was no time to be a child but here I was uh, now in a space where uh, the merry-go-rounds the seesaws and this <laughs> it's a church it's a safe place and there I was and I was also under the care of people who were not necessarily paid to take care of children but they felt it was a calling from God to take care of children and so they would work extra hours without any additional pay but they'll just work and take care. And Rodney, it was there that I met Pastor Peter. And Pastor Peter became the father that I did not have. He stood with me, he mentored me uh, to this day, and he's walked uh, closely with me. And all these doors were opening because one 15-year-old had made a decision to live simply so that I could simply live. And I could not be more grateful. And so the way I live today is really to give back as much as I can and um, make a difference uh, as a way of saying thank you. There were voices back for that eight-year-old that were saying, you're worthless, you're never going to be anything. Yeah. You're a joke. <laughs> what were the, the voices that came from Heather for you? What, what were the words that, that you experienced from Heather? You know, it's such a serious uh, problem of uh, poverty 
because poverty, like a voice, speaks to the child again constantly. As I mentioned earlier, you're worthless. You are nothing. Nobody wants you. And so that level of poverty, that invisible poverty, there is not amount of money you can throw at it to overcome it. There's not amount. You, you could cloth me up well, but the voice remains. You could give me Vaseline for my face and lotion, and the voice remains. There is nothing you can do using money to overcome that voice. The only thing that overcomes that voice is a counter voice, a counter message. And Heather's letters uh, brought to me uh, words like, Richmond, I love you. Richmond, I'm praying for you. Uh, these are the kids. She was part of a Presbyterian church, and so she could send me kids uh, pictures of the kids of the Presbyterian church. She wanted she sent me a picture of her pet dog and said, mm-hmm. "Hey, do you love dogs?" She completely didn't understand that we have no pet culture back home, and so that was a really funny question that she asked. But she sent me stickers. She sent me cards that had music in them, and Rodney, these these small and simple things were able to awake the rich man that was slowly dying. And she said words over and over again, words that I was not hearing in my community. And, and I believe that there is, there is something to be said about the community in which a child grows in. When, when a child grows up in Naguru, all they see is gangs and fighting and dirty water and death. And it's, it shapes the child's person. Not just the body, but the child's person. And so when I got these counter messages from Heather, uh, at first when she said, I love you, I thought, you don't even know me. How can you love me? But Rodney, Heather said that enough times that I believed her. And that's the work of God. It's a miracle. It's a miracle that a person who believes deeply darkness about themselves can actually change that belief system because of the words that are countering the message that they have always been hearing. And I believe that uh, it doesn't take that much to change the life of a child. Really, it doesn't take that much. But it takes that constant presence and that affirmation and that belief that, that hey, uh, I'm, I'm here with you. Uh, there's nothing you can ever do to, for me to let you go. I'm, I'm, I'm here. And I think that children can tell. And uh, I was able to tell. And I believed Heather's words. And I think that's what brought the healing that I currently experience. And now I'm very passionate about extending to other children. You mentioned Pastor Peter a a little while ago. And I believe that there's a particular story that he shared with you Mm -hmm. that made a radical difference in your life. So I joined the project at a very young age, and uh, but I, like I said to you earlier, Rodney, I, I didn't come from a family of faith. We didn't believe in God. We didn't believe in Christianity or anything like that. But we just wanted help. And we found help at the church. And it was at that church that I met this man, Pastor Peter, who later on became the father that I did not have. But again, uh, on joining the, 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 the project, we began to hear about the gospel about the good news of Jesus Christ, I received my first Bible at the local project. And I began to read this book and then to interact with friends about it and then to hear all these stories that were very, very exciting and, and engaging. And uh, I wish I had made this decision earlier, but I wa- it waited until I was 14 years old that I finally heard this story from Genesis 39 and 40 about this boy Joseph. And Pastor Peter spoke with passion and pleading with us about Christ. And he said, 
that this boy Joseph, he went through all these difficult things in his life, not of his own making. He went through all these challenges, but there was a God who had a good plan for him. And Rodney, my heart was touched and I could feel deeply that I'm, I need this God in my life. I, I'm a sinner. I, I need to repent and change and become anything that this God would want me to be. And uh, Rodney, that is how I made my decision to follow God. And I had no idea that it was going to completely change my future and change my family. A few years later on, I was 19 years old. And Rodney, I had had the opportunity to see all five of my siblings make a decision to follow Christ. All of them led to Christ by Pastor Peter. When I was 19, I had the absolute joy of seeing my mother invite herself to church. And she sat at the back and Pastor Peter was going as he normally goes every Sunday, talking with just passion about God. And my mother, she walked forward, knelt down, accepted Christ in her heart. And Ronnie, in that mind, I mean, in that moment, I just knew that our family would not be the same again. And that was true. Because uh, all the injustices that had happened to my mother, the man who uh, basically swindled all the money that she was entitled to as a result of my father's work and basically stole that money from her when she needed it the most, my mother was able to forgive him. My uncle, who took from us at the point of desperation, my mother looked at him and forgave him. My uncle ended up falling sick of cancer. And when my mother invited us and said, look, let's go and take care of uncle in hospital, I knew that my mother had finally forgiven. That action was almost impossible for a person who treated you so badly at a time when you needed them the most. And... Two days before my uncle passed, my mother led my uncle to the Lord. And the first days, I remember just being there with tears in my eyes as my uncle, when we first arrived at the hospital, he refused to look at us. He refused the forgiveness that we're offering, saying, look, I deserve to go to hell. I deserve, because of my life, I don't deserve your forgiveness. And he also suspected that we aren't actually able to forgive him. And so he... um, um, he looked away for a while, and then after that, my mother looked at him and just kept caring for him. A few days into it, uh, my uncle was insistent that whatever I will get after I die, I deserve because of my actions. So just leave me, let me be. And my mother looked at him. I remember Rodney, my mother, asking one of the most profound questions I've heard. My mother asked my uncle, could you use your finger to point at anybody here? who you think deserves to go to heaven, who's lived a life that is so right. And my uncle looked, and my mother said, that's it. It's all by grace. All of us, none of us deserve it. That's why it's a gift. And Rodney, it was just tears as we saw my mother lead my uncle to the Lord. And I came back with such an understanding of the gospel after that day, like, like like I've never seen. And all these changes happening, simply, my mother obviously had the gospel from Pastor Peter, but she would have never been in the church space if it wasn't for compassion. And compassion would never have been able to sustain its work in that place if it wasn't for Heather. And so I think about some of these connected pieces, names connected to names, Churches connected to churches, individuals connected to individuals. And I'm just saying, what a tapestry of God's amazing plan. 
Fast forward, you finished your schooling and then went on to university. What happened then? I had a passion uh, to fight corruption. I had heard at the time that Uganda was the sixth most corrupt country in the world. And my vision and dream was to heal my corrupt country by training accountants. So I went and studied very hard and I graduated on top of my class with a bachelor's degree in accounting. And I graduated with such good grades that the university retained me as a tutorial assistant. And I began to lecture at the university and I was passionate about teaching accounting, especially the ethical side of accounting. And that was a wonderful time. But then, uh, Rodney, it just kept before me uh, the story of my mother and how she was completely freed from this unforgiveness and this bitterness that was very common in the Nagur Islam. I thought, look, I mean, our, our, our community in Nagur needs accountants and it needs our business people and it needs the health and food and support. But what I think our community needs is that which changes us on the inside, that which brings hope. And so I began to pursue pastoral ministry. And Pastor Peter, who was my senior pastor then, was then promoted to become the general secretary of the Baptist Union of Uganda. And so Pastor Peter said to me, Richmond, I think it's time. It's time for you to become the senior pastor of this church. And so Rodney, I knelt down before a group of elders and witnesses who um, basically named me the senior pastor of the very church that rescued me as a child. And so I began to serve, uh, but without training. And so I began to serve very diligently. And later on, the Lord opened the door for me to do a master's degree in spiritual formation and discipleship. And then it just hit me, just it hit me like a ton of bricks that now I was in the top 1% of pastors in my country who had finally now got theological training. That's like, wow, to, to whom much is given, much is also required. And so I pulled myself together and I began to pray and ended up launching the Pastors Discipleship Network, which is a ministry that brings pastors together to study the word, to acquire ministry tools and ministry skills so that they can go and teach the Bible accurately, but also lead ministry effectively. And so I began that with a focus on Kampala City, uh, my city that I love. And I did not know that God had such a bigger vision for that. Today, we've expanded way beyond Kampala City across the nation to four other countries. So we're in South Sudan, we're in the Democratic Republic of Congo, we're in Rwanda, and we're in Uganda. And next year we'll be launching our space in Kenya where pastors come together to study the Word of God and to disciple each other. And so I look back and I look at the number. We, we, Rodney, we're now at 6,000. 6,000 pastors in the East African space that are part of this network. And we're diligently discipling each other and learning. And I think that where did it all start? And I can't escape the fact that all this potential was dying on the street until a 15-year-old girl put up her hand and said, I'll make a difference. I'll join that fight. So Life is so very different now to what it was for that eight-year-old boy, yeah. that happy eight-year-old boy whose life changed in an instant. And so much has happened since then. We talked before about the voices of poverty speaking to you. Mm. Now, we know that they were wrong. We know that there were counter voices. But do those voices sometimes still try to get in your head? Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I, um, I'll tell you just one specific story. When I was invited to a very high-profile dinner, and I honestly didn't believe I deserved to enter that space because I had categorized myself as uh, 
being lower um, in the community strata. And I decided, look, I, I don't know. It was going to be very awkward walking through this space where everyone is a leader with such a good background, such a good education. <laughs> what would I be doing in this space? And uh, yes, those voices kept getting into my head. Um, but that's why I'm passionate about breaking those lies. Um, I got help. Uh, I remember Steve Wilson, a gentleman who has been very, very helpful to me in um, helping me identify these lies that continue and linger on because it's not black, black and white where you can identify it. Sometimes it's there and you don't even know. It's you, It's been with you so long that that's it becomes your new normal. And until someone on the outside looks and says, look, Richmond, what, why do you look at yourself like that? Why are you so disqualif- constantly disqualifying yourself from from opportunities, disqualifying yourself from uh, conversations. Uh, why, why, why do you do that? And I realized, man, some of these lies still linger on in some way, but probably not as, uh, as, as it is in some other children's lives. But I think for me, it's a constant battle. And that's why the more I talk to children about it, the more I talk to fellow compassion kids about it, the more I free myself from some of these things and the sharper my eyes get in identifying some of these lies. And so, yes, Rodney, sometimes it's it's a constant battle. And I, th- I, th- I think in some way... Um, it is an onslaught from the enemy to really affect our identity, not just in Uganda, but around the world. There is an identity crisis. There are people who are wondering who they are or what they are. And inside people's hearts, there's always this uh, tickling thought. I mean, what if I live my life more fully? What if I really unleash the potential that's inside of me? But quickly, then they quiet that voice because, uh, you know, probably not today, maybe tomorrow. I'll, I'll, press that, I'll press into that thought a little bit more another day, but not now. And it's always this constant postponing of, of this suspicion that I'm, I could actually do more than I'm currently doing, but they, they keep extending it to tomorrow. And I think that that's, it's pronounced even more in the poverty space. Uh, but I know that uh, most people will recognize it. And it's, it's the more we fight in our own lives and feel the impact that happens when we release ourselves more fully into serving others, into being a blessing, into be making a difference, then the more we are keen to release others into uh, their full potential. You already touched on on a, a real message for you, and that is that we should be living more simply so yeah. that others may simply live. Yeah. Maybe that's a thought that you'd like to, to leave with us today. Yeah, uh, Rooney, I, I honestly believe that uh, it's not that complicated. Every time I choose or I volunteer to live with less, immediately that single decision, even though they make it now, uh, <laughs> It immediately frees up time, resources, and talent so that I could then allocate that to someone else. I mean, I'll just give you an example right now. So if I was going to have a meal today and the meal, let's say, costs $5 and I decide I am not having that meal because I want to live simply, I'm just going to spend through today uh, thinking and reflecting and pondering on the thought of What does it mean to make a difference? And I'm just not going to have that meal. Immediately, $5 is freed. And that $5 is not just freed. It's also the time that I'd have taken for that meal that's also freed up. So I could give that $5 to somebody as well as I could spend that one hour 
wish I would have walked to the place, had the meal and then walked back. And I probably walked to another place. And maybe there's a refugee family that's down the street that has a young boy that cannot speak English and is struggling in class. And I could, I could do that. Or I could walk down the street and walk with somebody, maybe someone who has a disability or a special need and, and, and just spend time with them. Or I could call up somebody who is struggling to understand something and basically... So, I mean, it's, just, it's a simple thing, but it's actually very radical. And uh, when a person decides, like, look, I, I, could, I could spend all my money buying the latest toys and the latest this, or I could just, just say, look, I have chosen, this is my life, I make a decision today to live simply. That's my choice. Nobody's forcing it on me. It's my voluntary choice. And when someone decides that immediately, that frees up resources, it frees up time, it frees up talent to be able to invest into the world. And if that investment is made in people, it makes all the difference. And we get off the treadmill that the world wants us to stay on. Yeah, exactly. Richmond, it's been such a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Rodney. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.